Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, our radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 8, verse 18. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 18. Last time we saw the power of the Holy Spirit working through Philip in the early church. Many people were saved, and many miracles occurred. A man named Simon, who previously practiced sorcery, believed and was baptized. Soon after, he witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon some believers by the laying on of hands by the prophets. Let's see how Simon reacts as we resume our study in Acts chapter 8, verse 18. Now, When Simon saw this, that is, he saw the power of the Spirit coming upon these believers by the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he knew that this was a key to a position of power. You see, this was something that not even Philip could do, and so he goes to Peter. Look at verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying... Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it is important to see that Simon was not trying to purchase the Holy Spirit. It's actually a lot worse than that. He was trying to purchase the power or the position of one that could dispense the Holy Spirit. He wanted to have the power and to be in the position so that people would have to come to him to receive the gift of God. You see, Simon did not even really desire the Holy Spirit for himself, but just the ability to impart the power of the Holy Spirit to others at his will, something that would give him much spiritual authority. You see, he wanted to be in charge of the Holy Spirit. He regarded the Holy Spirit as a power that he could use as he willed instead of a person who would rule his life. Just think of the blindness and the ignorance exhibited here. This man unregenerate as he was, actually thought that God's power could be bought with money. And his very name has been given to the sin of trying to buy religious power with money. It is called simony because of this man. Buying a position of authority. Buying a position of power so that he could stand between the people and God. Now, that became a huge problem in the Catholic Church from the 900s to the 1100s or so when the office of the Pope was sold to the highest bidder. The Popes didn't last long in those days, and there was a large turnover, and so there was a constant bidding war going on for the position. And this, of course, was during what is called the Dark Ages, and you can see why. There was one Pope Pope John the 19th that bought the office of Pope and was passed through all of the necessary degrees in one single day. Pope Benedict the 9th was made the Pope when he was 12 years old after his family, which was one of the most powerful families in Rome, bought the office for him, and he became known as the most wicked Pope that ever held power over the church. Not only that, a bishop's office could be bought for so much money. The same was true for the archbishop's office, a cardinal's hat, an ecclesiastical living in parishes and in monasteries. Simony finally gave rise to the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Finally, Martin Luther and the rest of those reformers came against it so that out of it came the Great Reformation. 
simony, trafficking in spiritual things for money, is a curse. But simony is not just reserved for the Catholic Church. It can happen in any church. And the Protestant Church also has a history of people getting preference because they have a lot of money. They have position in churches because they have money. There was a man that came to Chuck Smith one time. Chuck Smith is the founder of Calvary Chapel. This was about 30 years ago. It was during the Jesus Movement when thousands and thousands and thousands were getting saved. This man came to him and told him that he wanted to give him a million dollars for the church. And Chuck said, fine. And the man said that he would come back the next day with the check, which he did. And as he started to hand the check to Pastor Chuck, he said that he assumed that he would be put on the board of directors so that he could help determine how the money would be used by the church. Chuck said, no, he wouldn't, and he gave the man his million dollars back. See, this man wanted to use his money to buy a place of authority, and Pastor Chuck would have no part of it. But neither would Peter. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, in the original Greek, the language could not be any stronger. Peter literally says, to hell with you and your money. Now, that's the literal Greek. He's not cursing here. He's just making this point as strong as he can. I mean, it was a terrible thing that this man had suggested, that God's power could be bought with money as though God were but a mechanism subject to man's whim and caprice. Peter tells him very plainly, you and your money are both going to hell if you do not change your attitude. Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Money never has anything to do with it. But isn't it interesting how many people today think that somehow they can purchase a smile from God if they just give enough money to the church? Listen, God's gifts are free, always have been and always will be. Well, now Peter points out the real problem to Simon. Verse 21, he said, You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That's your problem, Simon, he says. You may have believed in an intellectual way, but your heart is unchanged. Your heart is not right before God. You're a phony. You're a fake. You're a fraud, pretending to be somebody that you're not. And then he says, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You see, Peter read this man's heart, full of bitterness and in the bond, the enslavement of iniquity. You see, he had never been set free. So what did Simon need to do? He needed to repent from his wickedness and then pray to God for forgiveness for the evil thought and the intentions of his heart. But look how Simon responds to Peter's rebuke, verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. In other words, he refuses to act personally. He still tries to put the responsibility on somebody else while he desires only to escape the penalty. Simon wants others to do for him what he will not do for himself. Simon doesn't mind covering his bases by having someone else go to God on his behalf, but there is no way that he's going to get close enough to God for God to have his hand on him. And of course, that is not the way it works. 
Salvation will come only to the person who is willing to throw themselves upon the mercy and the grace of God. Listen, the prayers of your parents will not save you. The prayers of your spouse will not save you, but your prayers can save you. With your mouth, you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and in your own heart, you need to believe that God raised him from the dead. And with your own will, you need to be willing to repent from the old and embrace the new, and then salvation will flow like a river into your life. Simon was unwilling to do this, and his end was worse than his beginning. You would be amazed how extensive a role this man plays in post-apostolic Christian literature, almost more than any other man. You see, he is the one who introduced the heresy of Gnosticism, which, among other things, stated that matter being evil and spirit good, God could not have created the world out of matter, nor could Jesus have become man and died for our sins. John the Apostle wrote his first epistle, 1 John, in part, to counter the threat of Gnosticism within the Church. Simon is portrayed in post-apostolic literature as the heretic of all heretics. His end came when he had some of his followers bury him alive under a pile of dirt, which he said he would rise out of in three days. Needless to say, Simon still remains under that pile of dirt today. Verse 25 says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Very simple verse. This speaks something to us. They served the Lord not for what they could get out of it, like Simon intended to do, but just out of their love and their devotion to God. Listen, God's people are never to be controlled by what do I get out of it or what's in it for me, whether it's recognition or accolade or preferment or fame or notice or notoriety or advancement or money. When we work for God, it is to be out of love and devotion. It's I'm doing what I'm doing because Jesus called me to do it, and if I'm not noticed, that will be all right because I'm not doing it to be noticed. I'm just serving out of love and devotion to my God. What wonderful things could happen in Christ's church if everyone, pastor, people, everyone, were working for the love of Jesus, and that was all, and just leaving the rest to God. I challenge you to do that and know that he will never let you down. Listen, if you just serve Jesus just because you love him with nothing else attached, he will give you twice as much as you ever thought possible because God never forgets us. So trust him. Give your life to him. Work for him, and he will see you through and lift you up and bless you abundantly. A little boy went to Sunday school, and afterwards his mom asked him who the Sunday school teacher was. And he goes, well, he said, I can't remember her name, but she must have been Jesus' grandmother because she didn't talk about anybody else. <laughs> and that is what a man in the early church did. We've already met him. His name is Philip, and he always kept it Christ-centered. Let me set the stage here. Philip was 
a deacon, waiter, evangelist, who had a Greek background and spoke Hebrew with an accent, a man who was filled with a spirit of good reputation and wisdom. And Philip had been chased out of Jerusalem during the great persecution of the church there, and he was sent by God to the city of Samaria to preach Christ to the hated Samaritans, a people detested by the Jews for over 400 years. Which, if you think about it, it was really a safe place for these Jewish Christians to hang out. The religious Jews that were persecuting the Christians hated the Samaritans so much they wouldn't even go on their soil. And so the believers that had fled there felt pretty safe being there. Now last week, we learned from Philip how to have a missionary spirit, a spirit of love, rather than a refugee spirit of fear. And because of that, because of the spirit that Philip had, God used him to shake up the whole nation of Samaria. Many Samaritans believed they were baptized and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the two nations, those now that had become Christians, once bitter enemies, became one in Christ. They were no longer Samaritans and Jews, but they were brothers in Christ. You know, Philip just loved to share Jesus. He had a concern for lost people. And we need to underline that because there are all sorts of evangelistic techniques today evangelistic classes, uh, training groups, and so on, saying, well, we're going to train you, and then you can immobilize the church, and you just need to get out there. And all of that is of no value unless there is a concern for the lost. You may know all of the techniques, but unless you love sinners, you will not be effective in sharing the gospel. The first step in leading a sinner to Christ is loving the sinner loving the person, and Philip had that kind of a concern. He showed that just by his lifestyle in getting the gospel out. And you know the desire to share Jesus should be natural for Christians. I mean, if you love Jesus, you want to share the gospel with others. But you know, even when God thrusts us out into the world, out into the marketplace, sometimes the opportunities just seem to pass us by. In the hustle and bustle of human affairs, our encounters with people seem to be so fleeting and so brief. We hurl past one another like speeding chariots on an old Roman road. So how do we catch those chariots of opportunity? How do we keep those witnessing opportunities from passing us by? Well, the story of Philip's witness in this chapter to the Ethiopian eunuch is a story of divine appointment, of a seized opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the story of how one man caught the chariot of opportunity and led another man to Christ. And you know, there is nothing that God likes more than bringing people together so that his purposes can be accomplished in their lives. It is called providence. God starting a work way back somewhere and then bringing all the pieces of the puzzle together so that he gets the right people in the right place at the right time with the right hearts so that his will and his purpose can be accomplished in their lives. Now, if you want to talk about the miraculous, there is nothing more miraculous than God's providence working its way out in our lives, intermingled with the lives of others. And that is what this account is all about. It begins in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. An angel suddenly appeared to Philip. Now, I've never had an angel appear to me. I have never seen an angel except the one that I married. 
You know, angels are always showing up in the scriptures, and especially in the book of Acts. Twice Peter was released from jail by an angel. And I don't know if you know it, but there are angels in this room. Hebrews 1.14 tells us angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Now, there have been well-documented experiences and incidents of the appearance of angels recorded in church history beyond the New Testament period. Bishop Festo Kevin Geary tells the story of how he escaped from the persecution of Idi Amin in Uganda. Festo was on Amin's death list, and he was trying to escape to Kenya. He and his family got lost in the mountains during the escape, and a man came out of the bush, and he said, where are you going? Festo said, to Kenya, and the men said, you go this way. Well, they traveled all night, and then at dawn, they got lost again. Again, a man appeared out of nowhere, and he said the same words, where are you going? To Kenya, replied the bishop, and again, the man said, you go this way. And later that morning, the fleeing family walked into Kenya in freedom. Angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So it says in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So the angel tells him to head for the road that leads from Jerusalem down to Gaza, not actually to go to Gaza, but to get on that road that goes to Gaza. Now, Gaza is a couple of miles inland off the coast of the Mediterranean. It is considered the last inhabitable city before the desert that leads into Egypt. Now, a divine appointment begins with God getting our eyes off of what we are usually into on a daily basis so that he can direct our gaze somewhere else. We all get so locked into the daily grind. We know exactly what we do on Monday and Tuesday and every other day of the week. And we are so conditioned to doing the same old, same old that most of us could sleepwalk through most of our days. And many of us do. And because of that, we miss so much of what God wants to do. We miss so much of what he wants to bring into our lives. And so there's a divine appointment coming here. It says, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and he said, arise and go down toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And this gives us insight into how God leads us by his spirit. So many times people say, I wish I knew what the will of God was for my life. Have you ever said that? And usually by that we are saying, I wish God would show me on a screen of my future. I'd like to know what my future holds. I'd like to know all that God has planned for me. But God only said to Philip, arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You see, he didn't tell him any more than that. That is the first step in the will of God. God did not speak to him again until he had taken the first step. So many times when God has given us the first step, we don't want to go until he gives us the second step or the third step or the fourth step. Philip could have argued with the Lord, you know. He could have said, Lord, why in the world do you want me to go down to the desert? I mean, there's nobody there. I mean, that's just a desert. Why would you want me to leave this great meeting that we are having in Samaria? Lord, you're making a serious mistake here. There are hundreds of people that are being saved here in Samaria. I mean, they're coming and they're listening to the gospel. This is exciting, Lord. Why would you want me to go down to the road to Gaza? Wanting to know the whole plan, see? Wanting to know the whole program that God was doing. 
But God so often only gives us step one. And step two does not come until step one has been taken. And I am certain that had he stayed in Samaria, arguing with God, seeking to have further clarification of his call, that he would never have received it. God would have sent someone else to go meet the Ethiopian eunuch, one step at a time. That's how God usually works and directs our lives. So verse 27 says, he arose and went. And so Philip travels some 40 miles from Jerusalem, then down westward toward the Mediterranean Sea, another 30 miles, 70 miles on foot. So this guy is obedient. Now somewhere in that area, he's walking along a desert road, and suddenly the text says, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch. And here we are introduced to a very sad and pitiful man. This Ethiopian was a victim of the terrible institution of the Oriental harem with its ever-present eunuch. He was an emasculated man. He was a dry root. He was a withered branch with no hope forever of family, issue, or posterity. But he was a gifted man because he was in charge of all the treasury of the nation. It says, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So this man was coming back from worshiping God in Jerusalem. He has come from Ethiopia all the way along the Nile, up through Egypt, along the Mediterranean, through Gaza and through the hills of Jerusalem, 1,500 miles. And now he's going home, another 1,500 miles. This man was a man of great responsibility. He was the secretary of the treasury of Ethiopia. He had great authority, and so he was a man of great influence throughout all of Ethiopia and Egypt. And he worked with the queen. Now, her name was not Candace. That was her title. It's a title like pharaoh or emperor given to all of the queens of Ethiopia. And we see some indication of his status here in verse 28 because it says that he was sitting in his chariot. Now, a few people could afford the luxury of having their own chariot in those days. And so this was the luxury Lexus or Mercedes of the day. It was his status symbol. Here was a man of great influence and great wealth. Here was a man of great authority and power. Here was a man of status and prestige. Here was a very respectable citizen indeed, but he was lost. You see, it is possible to be the most respected citizen in the community, to be a person of prestige and power and influence and wealth, and at the same time be lost and on the way to hell in a handbasket. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A person's status or position or prestige or influence or wealth or education and authority do not make that person saved. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ transfers one from the role of the lost to the role of the saved. But also notice that this man was religious. And he was obviously a searching man. He had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He was no doubt a Jewish proselyte. He was looking for something. 
No doubt, he desired to come there and to learn more truth about God. And I'm sure that his heart was very eager with anticipation as he set off 1,500 miles away to come to the city of Jerusalem. Because there he could visit the Holy Temple, he could make his offerings, he could converse with the rabbis, he could walk in the court of the Gentiles, he could talk to the priests and the Levites. And the scholars of the law could explain the fine points of faith to him, and maybe his position as a court official would provide an entree to the great Sanhedrin council, and maybe he could even get an interview with the high priest. So he sets out on this journey, and he journeys long up the Nile and then across the desert sands of Sinai, and finally through the hill country of Judea, and then there it was, the holy city. The great walled city appeared before his eager eyes, and there in the midst was the temple of God, bathed in golden splendor, like a fiery beacon on Mount Moriah. At last, he had arrived in Jerusalem. But his journey was to end in disappointment. What he found in the holy city was hypocrisy, materialism, intolerance, and sectarianism. What he found there was not a living faith, you see, but a dead Judaism. And so the scripture says that he was returning, sitting in his chariot, reading the scriptures. He was trying to make sense out of the scriptures. And you know, this is a sad picture of religious humanity without Jesus Christ. And one of the tragedies of our day is that so many people attend religious services, yet they go away with empty hearts. There are thousands, literally hundreds of thousands in our country this morning who have joined a religious organization, but they are not saved. You see, you can be religious and lost at the same time. But we also need to see that this man was receptive because in verse 28 it says that he was sitting in his chariot and he was reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. You see, God had prepared this man to hear Here we have a searching sinner whose heart is empty, whose life is unfulfilled, but who is receptive to the truth. Typical of many today. You know, often the people that we come across today are inwardly looking for something that has substance, something that is real. They know their life is unfulfilled, but they don't know how to find that fulfillment. They're open and receptive and ready for someone to share the truth with them. They're like this Ethiopian, they're searching. Here was a man who was responsible, but lost. Here was a man who was religious, but lost. Receptive, but lost. And he is a lot like many of your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, and even your family. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.